welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker, and me, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair. Chepregi has been a cultural worker since 1972, a nomad who is currently situated in Windsor, Ontario, who graduated from the University of Windsor and taught high school for over 20 years. Her work has been performed by dance and theater companies in Vancouver and has appeared in several publications, including the Windsor Review, Rampike, Ash, Spittoon, which is out of Beijing, Cranberry Tree Press Anthologies, and Whiskey Sour City Anthology from Black Moss Press. Tears, T-I-E-R-S, is her first full book of poems through Cranberry Tree Press. Welcome, Ellie. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Nice to, nice to be here today. Um, nice to have you. Wonderful to see all three of you. You as well. So how have you been doing throughout the pandemic? And has the pandemic era had any impact on your writing? Oh, yes. Well, you know, it makes you settle down, doesn't it? <laughs> you have no choice. You have to stay in. You have to think about things. Basically, I've been doing a lot of soul searching and as a result, writing more poems. So the poetry has been written daily. I've been writing daily. Not all of it is, you know, a lot of it is just thoughts, the clearing of the throat before you get to the actual poem. But uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a challenge. Um, it's difficult not seeing family, not seeing friends, not going out. And we all know that. So uh, that's, that's about it, really. I, um, I think a lot of people are writing these days, though. And that's a good thing. That's always good, too express yourself on paper or artistically yeah mm -hmm. when and how did you first discover your passion for poetry oh my gosh it's interesting because I kind of grew up with it my grandfather my great-grandfather had a small literary magazine in Hungary and so and he you know there were poems and art and you know articles about art so my mother was actually very interested in poems, and so was my father. So we both had, I got that from both parts of the globe, from both sides of the family. I don't know, I just always liked it. But I think when it really hit me was around the age of 12, when I ran into Sylvia Plath's poetry. Yeah, and uh, I, think, I think she triggered a lot of people and a lot of young women, especially women of my age. And uh, yeah, I really, I could really relate to her writing. It's very emotional, very passionate. So how do you carve out time for your own writing? Do you have a particular routine to keep on track? Well, when I was working and I was teaching, it was a very intense career, as you can imagine. I ran a poetry club. And um, part of it, too, was entering the kids into contests and everything. And so... With that, I used to write a few, I'd say, okay, well, let's write a poem about this, let's write about that. When I was working, it was difficult to get the poetry written, right? 
I inspired a lot of young people and got them published and they won contests and what have you. But my own, um, my own writing now, I start the day writing. I set the timer and I write. Right now for Poetry Month, I'm looking at the meditations for April from a book of angel meditation. I know it sounds funny, but it gets me going. And so I write about these meditations and I do a piece of art with each meditation and I write a poem. So that's one thing I find if I leave it too late in the day, I don't have the mental capacity to write anything. So yeah, it's, it's a discipline. It's what I'm doing now. Yeah. As a, you know, a retired person and as a person who can't volunteer and can't travel right now, like the rest of us. So that's what I do. Pre-pandemic, you have spent a great deal of time traveling the world to all kinds of fascinating places, including teaching overseas. Mm-hmm. What impact do you think your travels have had on your writing? Well, it certainly opened up my mind. What can I say? What impact did it have? I liked listening to the rhythms of the streets. Wherever I went, I listened to the rhythm of the street. I listened to the voices around me. It didn't matter if I, of course, I didn't understand what they were saying. (laughs) You know, they were speaking so many languages, but you listen to the tones of people's voices. And um, it was interesting because when I was in China and I lived there for a year, I got involved with a group called um, the Bookworm Writing Group, and they evolved into the Spittoon Writing Group. Okay. And It was an international group of expat writers, and it was run by a Michigan woman from Royal Oak, Annie, Annie Leonard, who started this group at a cafe, and it's been around, well, she didn't start it, she continued it. So anyway, it it was a great place to meet people from all over the world. And people would come in and they would intensely write, and we would do these intense critiques of each other's work, And um, then they would leave and then a new batch would come in and they were really intense. And so what I learned from that experience was the pure love and enjoyment of sharing poems. You know, it didn't matter if they were great poetry or if they were intellectual or anything like that. It was just, this is how I feel. I'm writing. I will fix it. I'll bring it back next week. And it was done. And then their contracts were over and then they'd leave and then they, another person would come in. And it was just so great to have people from all over the world coming and going and sharing their writing, their visions, their politics through their art. Your new book, Tears, T-I-E-R-S, has been mm-hmm. described uh, by Hanan Hazme as a delectable collection of poems that explore various stages of life using baked goods as a theme. Baked goods. <laughs> How did the idea for this collection come about? Oh boy, this is a long story and it's written in the front of the book about, um, I was a waitress. I was a waitress in New York in 1973 and I was hired to work on a banquet. Okay, this woman had her big wedding. Uh, I think it was her sixth wedding. She was a restaurant owner and she had many connections and there was this huge party and this huge cake. By the time the party was over, no one ate the cake. 
right? <laughs> so <laughs> they gave it to us, us servers, and we're standing there. And we said, well, we have nothing to take it home in. And they said, oh, here's some plastic bags. Just pile it in. And so we got all these great plastic bags. Um, the bottom of the cake, of course, was cakey. So we had slabs and, you know, these women had kids at home and husbands. And I was just a young single woman with a roommate who had a dog. <laughs> so we just kind of divvied it up and went on our merry way. But our way on the way out, I looked in this dirty doorway and there was the top of the cake with the bride and groom on it in perfect condition, but it was surrounded by cigarette butts and gum wrappers and beer bottles. And I thought, hmm, there was a story there. If anyone walked past this, they'd be wondering. But that's, um, that's one of the things I used to do was I was an event planner. I used to plan proms. I used to be involved in um, helping out at community centers. And there was always cake involved or baked goods. But people don't always eat everything there. It's the dessert that's left over. But the dessert and these baked goods have so much effort put into them. You know, how you put the little letters of a person's name on it, how perfect it is. Um, one of my friends, she is a baker. And she had made a cake, a graduation cake for her son's graduation and wrote in perfect letters, everybody's name on this absolutely wonderful cake. You know, the kids went, wow. And they dove into it with their hands. So I thought, my goodness, what is this? This is just insane. You know, all this love and attention to an event, a baked good, and then what happens? So I thought, okay, well, this is a metaphor. And I just worked with that. The actual poems themselves evolved over, well, the first one, of course, evolved from like the story at the beginning that goes all the way back to 73. And then the final ones are, um, I'd say the final ones I finished in 2017, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But uh, yeah, it was a long process. It's not like I focused just on that. I had other projects as well between the decades. But finally compiling everything was, um, was interesting. You know, it was interesting. So it's a metaphor. So speaking of the compilation process, your book is divided into three different sections or, or tiers. And how did you decide on the distribution of poems between the tiers? It was a suggestion by the editor, Stuart Ross, and there's the months, and then the last part is the, um, the final piece, which is a long prose poem. And uh, it has a quiz at the end. And, you know, like the first part is special, you know, baked goods for special occasions, so that's it. And now those are bits and pieces, little cookies and squares and what have you. So that's what, that's how it came to be, like categories of baked goods. I have to add that the cake poems, and I forgot to add this, are um, about overconsumption. A lot of people don't get that, the waste idea of uh, the environment, um, 
all this frivolity and everything that ends up just it's overconsumption. It is a on one level, it's a book about post-consumerism. Yeah. Um, I tried to work that in more, but that just didn't fit the tone of the book, so I left it out. But it is about post-consumerism. So many of the poems in this collection appear to convey a sense of nostalgia tied to particular sweets. And this makes total sense psychologically because we know that the regions of the brain responsible for taste memory and encoding the time and place we experience that taste are connected. And we know that sweets often carry happy memories with them. Mm -hmm. How much of this collection was based on your authentic life experiences? Um, most of it. Most of it is. Now, I have to clarify, I am not a baker. <laughs> I know many people who bake. I'm very good at going to a bakery and buying baked goods, okay? That's basically how good I am at baking. So, yeah, a lot of it is, especially the ones with the Hungarian, like the Dobosz Torta, the Kremes Lepping, the cream pie, and certain Hungarian baked goods are certainly the ones that are tied to directly to um, personal experience. So a follow-up question then, I mean, since these are real life uh, memories that you're conveying in at least some of the poems, were any of the other characters in your real life stories able to read this collection? And if so, what were their responses to it? Well, um, I haven't heard back from some people. <laughs> And uh, my sister said they were quite touching. You know, she felt um, a sense of nostalgia as well. Um, of course, my parents never saw that. My father passed away in 2003 and my mother passed away in 2017. They were very private people. I don't think they would have really understood the motivation of my writing the poems. Um, I think it's, uh, it's interesting, it's interesting, but I think the way I wrote them, it's not really pointed, so people would question, well, was that about me? <laughs> Did that really happen? Do I recall something like that? So it's, uh, it's up for grabs. I've never had the privilege of going to Hungary, but I, uh, I can imagine the cafe culture. Oh, yeah. The idea of stopping into somewhere that smells amazing and sitting down and taking a pause in life and that being a part of the rhythm of people's day. Is, did that inform your, your work to a certain oh, it extent? It most certainly did. Yeah, Shutamein, your baked goods, are um, considered a food group in Hungary. Seriously. Like when we were there, the first time we returned, we had to have a cake break every day. And we sat in a cafe and, you know, like we were able to go back in 1974 um, without being persecuted, which was awesome because we were all refugees, right? And so we would go to the cafes and we'd sit under the trees and there was somebody playing the violin and they were lovely. My sister and I went back in 2014 and we would go to the cafes and we noticed that businessmen would come in and rather you know you think oh well you know you have a drink after work nope these guys would have a piece of cake and not just one piece of cake they'd have two or maybe three pieces with a good coffee and maybe a whiskey chaser 
And yes, it was part of their life. And for some reason, they all looked very slim and trim. I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't like, uh, you know, I think they might have um, no, no calorie butter or something. I don't know what it is, but they were, yeah, they looked fine. It's just their metabolism, I think. They're so used to having cakes and pastries and delicious food that way. And it is an art there. It truly is an art. So what are you working on now? What's your next project? Um, right now, I'm actually working with another international group. And we we are from... We all lived in Chengdu at one time and we write poems together. We work on topics. So I've got poems about that. But as far as a definite project, I started um, writing about the refugee um, situation. And some of that is very difficult work for me, having worked with refugee children in Windsor teaching them it's it's um it's coming along slowly but it is you know when you write and you have to go to places that you'd rather not visit in your mind so it's um it's a process for sure yeah <laughs> that's all i'm saying right now um am i doing any collaboration right now no but in the future i hope to except for the uh, international group. And we get along really well. It's a lot of fun working with uh, people. And now with COVID, we can get people from all over the world to Zoom in and talk about poetry and what have you. So it's great. That is one of the rare benefits of what has otherwise been a truly awful mm -hmm. period for so many people around the world, that there is this virtual connectedness that kind of got amplified as a result. But, you know, we'd still rather not have the pandemic, obviously. Oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, it amazes me how flexible and adaptable humans are, right? Mm -hmm. So able to just go, okay, then we'll figure a way out of this and we'll figure out how to communicate. And it's really good. Um, I think the whole thing of um, living in a news story is very tiresome. Yes. You can't wake up and think, oh, my God, it's a day I can do this, I can do that. You want to, but then you go, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't see this person. I can't go there. I'll go for a walk by the river, watch Netflix, write a poem, cook, bake some cookies. <laughs> no, we're very limited. And that's one thing I learned, too, is how fortunate we are as North Americans because when I, I stayed in Nepal for a week, I worked in a school there one summer, just for a week. It, nothing formal. It was just through an organization, an NGO. And living in the little village in a hut with a Brahmin family, they were a poor, a rich Brahmin family, but their life was so limited, you know? And I think with COVID, we understand that a little better. Because if anything, we have noticed that our life has become very limited. We cannot just do what we want. Just like 75% of the world, they cannot just do whatever they want. They don't have the resources. 
they don't have the freedom, you know? And what's interesting about COVID is all of our passports are worth the same. They're equal, it's a great passport equalizer. It doesn't matter if you're from Japan or Canada or Afghanistan or Hungary, your passport is level with every other passport in the world right now. I think that's what I read. And, you know, I mean, we're just limited. We can't do what we want. Interesting perspective regarding the passports for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think, I think we are very privileged here. And that's, of course, oh my gosh, yeah, you asked earlier about how has it affected me? Yeah, it has affected me, especially when I met the kids in Nepal who were so eager to learn and so precise with their verbs and their usage and their terminology. It just shocked me. I was privileged to be able to teach them. And these kids would walk over for two hours to take a one hour class. And then they would walk home again for two hours. And this, is, this was their life. And they wore the same clothes every day. They, you know, maybe wash them, wait for them to dry, and then wear them again the next day. They had nothing. Yet they were so eager to learn. And it was wonderful. And they wrote poems, too. So it was an eye-opener. And I think um, I was so lucky to be able to do that. So would you like to read some of your work for our listeners? Sure. What would you like me to read? Was there anything that you thought would be, um, is there any, I don't know, long, short, I'll read, a, I'll read a couple of shorter ones. My favorite is Tears in the book, I should tell oh, you. Oh, you really do like that one? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the that's the name of the book. <laughs> yes, indeed. Please read a few. All right, I will read, I'll finish up with Tears. Okay. Maybe that'll be the last one. But I could read, well, we just finished Easter, but, oh, a lot of people have commented on face cake. Um, oh, yeah. And some of these poems deal with relationships, but they're so vague that nobody would know that it's them, which is awesome. <laughs> I'm going to read face cake. And your face hovers behind my eyes. I try to ignore this obsession without potential. It is just a boulder that moves beside me through my days, stops me at night to ponder impossibilities. But it is dark. I am a thin morsel of light as your door slowly closes, quietly locks. Okay. Another one, since we just got out of Easter, I'm going to read Easter cake. Descending the stairs, pearl polished slingbacks, her sheer secrets burst from a fuss of chiffon floral pattern of mums, pink, mauve, purple, blue hydrangea, yellow daisies tipped on a bias hem, wrapped around a waist, a matching satin belt, pretty, she stops. Flora, a dream, she is mine, my muse, who will set the rise of passion in my soul, burn me, blow me to ashes. I come alive in a musical ring, 
Her words tell me she wants to feel baby's breath on her breasts, that I am too eager, past my prime, not her type. And she says it's only fair to stop before someone gets hurt. So I use the voice of a male in that poem. Uh, it was just someone who I met briefly who oh, really had this passion for women in flouncy dresses, which I thought was weird. Anyway, let me read you one about um, a cake cake. I'll, I'll read one, the creme de chlapain, which is the cream pie. And then I'll read tears. Tears fell from the exiled politician's glass eye as he cherished the creme de chlapain my mother baked for a Saturday night party to please the other Hungarian refugees. I stood in a corner trapped in a web of double bubble I wove by pulling strings of chewed gum from my mouth out of boredom and curiosity. His blue-green glass eye peered blindly at me as I battled the sticky threads. The laughter of the adults was boisterous. I began to cry, so we wept for different reasons. Joy covered his face as he ate the flaky dessert. His history was purified with cherries, icing sugar, pastry, custard. Life was bountiful. Memories of better times returned. Eventually, my father and a taffeta-dressed lady cleared the gummy cobweb away from me. Blessings were whispered as delicate vanilla-scented hands whisked my face. Okay, so cream uh, of is like um, a cream pie with several layers, and my mother made them very special. She added cherries. And one of the friends that we had that my parents hung out with, and we considered them an aunt and uncle, because one of the things about refugees is they leave their family behind. There is no extended family. So we adopted them as aunt and uncle, but my mother said he was tortured badly. And he had an eye gouged out. He had a glass on. So it was interesting when I found that out because I do remember him as a child and he did have one eye that was always staring at you <laughs> no matter what you did. And I do remember him crying because the cake that she made, the pie she made was so good. And it brought back memories of better times when before the uprising. Okay, and finally, I'll read the signature poem of the book, Tears. During the final years of their marriage, she was committed to the garden. Thank you, Ellie Chepregi. Best wishes for the success of this book. It's just lovely. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.